0: Our lesson this morning begins with the very same verse that the last week's lesson ended with. Obviously, it's a continuation. It's Jesus telling the people of the synagogue in Nazareth, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus had just read from the prophet Isaiah, who had described the one who had been anointed and sent to preach the good news to the poor, to the prisoners, to the oppressed, and those in need. And Jesus said very forcefully then said, I am the one of whom I say am speaking. In verse 21 it says, All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. But then we go to see that the reason they were so amazed was that when they looked at Jesus, what they saw was Joseph, the carpenter's son. The man that had spoken with such powerful ways was someone they knew. He had probably done work for many of these people in his farm, his carpenter shop. And when they looked at him, they didn't see someone who had been sent from God. They saw a man they watched grow up in their own community. Not the Messiah who had been described by the prophets. So the message that Jesus spoke was an amazing thing to hear. But it was impossible for them to believe. I remember a good friend of mine that I had growing up. He was a year ahead of me in high school and he we we roomed together one year in college. And after his sophomore year, he joined the Marines. And it was over a year before we saw each other again. Now, I remember Cleve as being a rather tall, overweight, darky sort of guy that was rather average in many ways. But what I saw a year later was a tall, slim, trim fighting machine that was full of self confidence and gung hoism, if there is such a word. I had to do a double take to make sure that this was the guy that I'd grown up with. His face looked the same, but everything else about him was different. And I suspect that's a little about what the townspeople in Nazareth were feeling when they saw Jesus and heard him speak. Isn't this Joseph's son? Where's he been? Where did he get those disciples? Where did he get these new radical ideas about God's love and grace and mercy and forgiveness? Who is this guy? Jesus had been traveling throughout the area, preaching in the neighboring synagogues. And he was beginning to gain a reputation. But that wasn't the case in Nazareth. Jesus seemed to know what it was that the people were looking for. They wanted to see some miracles. They wanted to see him perform some of those miraculous deeds in his hometown that he'd done over in Capernaum and some of the other villages. Jesus looked back at the history of the Old Testament, the prophets, and he reminded the people that during the time of Elijah, there had been a famine in the land that had lasted for three and a half years. But the only person that Elijah ministered to was a widow in Sidon. Now in first page we read that when the rivers had dried up because there had been no rain, you know, I think it's bad here sometimes when the lake goes down a foot or two, but I can only imagine what it would be like if our lake just dried up. Elijah went to Zarephath, the town of the region of Sidon. God told Elijah that he'd meet a widow there who would feed him. And so when he arrived, he met a woman and he asked her for some water and a piece of bread. And the woman told Elijah that she didn't have any bread. In fact, she was looking for a few sticks in order that she might build a fire and take the last of her flour to make a small cake of bread so that she and her son could eat their last meal together before they died of starvation. Elijah told the woman to go and make him a small cake of bread. And when the woman acknowledged his request, he told her that the God of Israel would see that her jar of flour would not run out and her jug of oil would not run dry until God returned the the rains to the land. The woman had done as Elijah had instructed and the God of Israel was true to his word. The interesting thing about this story is that the woman in Zarephath was not a Hebrew woman. Zarephath was a town on the coast of the Great Sea, north of Tyre, where Elijah had gone to escape the wrath of the evil Jezebel. And during the time of the Great Famine, God did not send Elijah to perform any miracles among his own people. Following the time of Elijah, we have Elisha. And Jesus told the people that during that time there were many lepers in Israel, but the only leper that was cured was a man named Naaman. A general in the Syrian army, who was also a Gentile. You may remember that story. Jesus said, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. This had been true of the Old Testament prophets. It would appear that the same was going to be true of Jesus. The people wanted to see Jesus perform some miracle acts, and Jesus countered their request by telling them <clears throat> two stories, where God had caused a miracle in the life of two Gentiles, not Jews. I imagine that endeared Jesus to the people even more. The Jewish people believed that God had created Gentiles in order to provide fuel for the fires of hell. And Jesus, like the story of the the Good Samaritan, used an example of a Gentile to let the people know that God's love and mercy was to be available to all people. But that certainly wasn't the message that the people wanted to hear that. What really caused the people to get so upset with Jesus was that he pointed out the necessity to tend to the needs of those less fortunate. Those in prison. Those who were oppressed, both Jew and Gentile. And I suspect that they had become outraged because Jesus had acquainted himself with the prophet Isaiah when he said, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. But what really seems to have been the trigger... Of their angle when he suggested that the God of Israel might also be the God willing to care for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. The people in the synagogue were so sure that they were God's people that they were utterly, they utterly despised all others. And here was Jesus preaching as though the Gentiles were just as favored as they were. The words of Jesus were like nothing they'd ever heard before. And all of us tend to get a little nervous when we hear some new idea me. For the first time, don't we? You know, part of the art of preaching is attempt to win over your listeners. You want to ingratiate yourself to the heart of the congregation so that they'll listen to what you have to say. Now you might like Joel Osteen likes to do, he starts off with a joke. He gets everybody blacks and then he builds from there. But Jesus didn't do any of those things in his sermon. Right off the bat, he goes on the attack and very quickly things get nasty. Jesus didn't attempt to ingratiate himself; rather, he assaulted and antagonized those who had come to the synagogue and worship. Things were going well in that all-purpose-driven synagogue until so Jesus opened his mouth, and then all hell broke loose. You might have thought that Jesus would have used a more effective rhetorical strategy in his message to people. He might first have attempted to win the affection of the people before hitting them with such new and strange ideas. He might have contextualized his message as to urge them to, they urge us to do a homiletics class. This was the first time that he would speak in the synagogue in Nazareth, his own town. He, you, you would have thought that he would wanted everything to be just right. A few years ago, Carol and I had the opportunity to go over to, to Athens to the installation of the new rector there. Uh, Father Parks had invited Carry Borah to be the speaker for that service to preach. And those of you that have heard Carrie speak before here at said, Dunsons can only imagine the, the energy and the enthusiasm that she brought to that service. She'll be here with the bishop in a couple of weeks. So if you have a better, you can then. But the interesting thing was that the, the bishops were there. Heather Michelle was there, the chairman of the standing committee of the diocese, the, the president of the executive council, the dean of the cathedral, along with <clears throat> many other clergy. Many people had come to support Father Prashal, in his new ministry, and this is the first time that many of these people had heard Carrie preach, and I suspect Carrie wanted her servant to be just right, and you would have thought that Jesus would really have wanted his servant in his hometown to be just right, but rather than picking and choosing his words very carefully, he sits down and throws a book out of him. Well, actually, I guess it was a scroll. He pokes him in the eye with the book of Isaiah, and then he hits him with a left hook in 1 Kings, one minute the people are amazed that their native son has apparently made good and was becoming a noted rabbi, and the next minute they're furious with the message that he attempted to drive home. And they want to take him off and throw him off a cliff. Glad we don't have any hills around here this morning. <laughs> but the scripture says he'd walk right through the crowd and went away. And we have no other record of Jesus ever returning to Nazareth. The Son of God had been in the very midst of his people and they didn't recognize him. They missed out on God's blessing because they didn't want to hear what he had to say. Jesus had a message to preach, but he didn't care if that message offended some people. I talked to different preachers from time to time. Most of them agreed that they spent a a great deal of their time attempting to maintain a, a certain level of peace within their congregations. And it seems that the larger the congregation, more time it takes. Time and energy that might better be used proclaiming God's message rather than soothing feathers and calming spirits. Thank goodness I don't sense that that's a problem here. Maybe Jesus knowing that that he wasn't long to be here on earth, maybe he knew that his message needed to start. Maybe he felt the urgency of his message overshadowed the need to be tactful like me. It's interesting that we have, in our Old Testament lesson this morning, the reading from the book of the prophet Jeremiah. When we think about Old Testament prophets, it's easy to see and understand why there were some in Jesus' time that thought that he was a prophet sent from God. You see, there are two basic ingredients in the making of the prophet. There's always a situation of crisis in which the people are lost or in danger of becoming lost. And oftentimes, that crisis that the people were facing was the message that God sent through his prophets as a warning. The other ingredient was a personal experience in which the person found himself gripped by God and commissioned to proclaim God's message. However, the fact that the person might well have that personal relationship with God did not always mean that they were eager to be a prophet. In our Old Testament lesson, Jeremiah says, Now the word of the Lord came to me. And I don't told how the word came to him. It just simply came. But Jeremiah sensed the call. God intruded in his life, and Jeremiah realized that God had a purpose for his life. God told Jeremiah, I'm appointing you a prophet to the nations. And immediately, Jeremiah responds. His response reminds me of Moses. When God called him out of the burning bush, Remember? God told Moses that he, he wanted him to return to Egypt and leave the people out of bondage. And How did Moses respond? He, he said, well, I wouldn't know what to say. I, 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 I can't speak well. The people won't follow me. God said, all right. I'll let her do the talking. Now you go do the leading. That's my plan for you. That's another lesson there for us this morning. God has a plan But if we say no to that plan, God's prepared to go to plan B. When God has a plan, he's going to activate that one way or the other. The question is, will you and I be a part of that plan or not? When God has a task for you and me, he can be pretty persuasive. But that doesn't mean that we can't come up with all kinds of excuses. We we can say, you can say no. But plan to be miserable if you say no to God. Maybe some here this morning say, "You know, there's, there's something missing in my life. I, I don't know what it is, but I just have a, an uneasiness in my life that won't go away." It may be that God has something that He wants you to do, and consciously or unconsciously, you've been saying no. Jeremiah wasn't the only priest to attempt to get out of doing what God had called him to do. Remember Jonah? Being a prophet wasn't an easy task. It wasn't always a safe task. It certainly wasn't always a popular task. There were all kinds of reasons why a person might not choose to be a prophet. But that wasn't the point, was it? You see, when it comes to ministry, it's God that does the calling. Our responsibility is to respond and say, Here I am, Lord. What is it you want me to do? During the season of Advent, we heard words similar to that from a young Jewish girl named Mary. She certainly didn't choose to become the mother of God. I doubt that anyone would have chosen that task for themselves. But when the angel appeared to Mary and said, little one, you've been chosen by God for a special task. Her response was, what do you want me to do? And that's the answer that God wants to hear from each of us. What's the message for each of us here this morning? What is it that we might learn here today? God has a task for each one of us. He calls each and every one of us who believe in him to boldly share the good news with those we come in contact. God doesn't just call a few of his followers to do his work here on earth. He calls all of his followers to share together in the harvest. Jesus said the harvest is great, but the workers are few. Jesus had a passion and during his time among us he attempted to share that passion in such a way that all who would come after him would share his vision of God's kingdom here on earth. John Maxwell's a noted theologian. He said one time that passion makes the impossible possible. And our passion to reach out to others needs to be greater than our fear of speaking out boldly about our faith. Our passion needs to be greater than a few years ago at St. James, the people participated in a program called Harvest Unlimited. Some of you may have never heard of it. Over a two-week period, they literally called hundreds of people by the telephone at night. People from the church came each evening to pray for those who might have prayer requests. It was an opportunity that they had to reach out boldly into their neighborhood in an attempt to invite the church to be a part of their worshiping family. And they were pleased to see that there were some new folks who began to worship with them on Sunday mornings. Those numbers weren't, weren't big, but they were meaningful. And I doubt that they'll ever know for sure the total impact that that effort had on that community. The reason that they involved themselves in that program was that they had been called to proclaim the good news of Christ to a world in crisis, just as the prophets of the Old Testament. They needed to the share in the urgency that Jesus felt when he preached in the synagogue 2,000 years ago in Nazareth. Jim spoke a couple of weeks ago about the exciting things that we can envision here at St. Dunstan's in the months and years to come. There'll be a new priest here to lead you and challenge you to be all that you can be. I would hope that each of you would begin to think about how you're going to be involved in the life of the ministry of St. Dunstan's in the future. How are you going to support the efforts of your church as you witness to the presence of God in your community? God calls each of us to give of our time and our talents and our possessions. Might God be calling you to give more of your time during the coming year? Maybe more time studying His Word. Maybe more time spent in prayer and meditation. Might God be calling you to give more of your talents to the oncoming ministry of your church about becoming more involved in the, in the life of the congregation. Might God be calling you to, to give more of your possessions to the work of the church as it grows its ministry. Might He be calling you to do all these things. You know, when God called His people to give of their time and their talent and their possessions, that wasn't multiple choice. <laughs> In the months and the years to come, that dungeon is going to see change as you continue to grow. You may may need to to change the way you do some things, believe it or not. One of these days, you're going to have that full-time rector who's going to lead this congregation as you continue to grow. But these things aren't going to happen unless you, you take a long, hard look at your individual attitudes concerning stewardship and giving back to God what He's already given to you went down to Camp Allen a couple summers ago where I attended a conference and looked into a number of areas needed for a healthy congregation to grow. The conference gave each of us a good deal to think about. It. And one of the things that you're beginning to do here is to put together a parish profile. What you ask is a parish profile. Well, it's an opportunity to think about who you are, where you've come from, where you're headed, what are your strengths and weaknesses, what are the needs of this community and of your members? What steps will need to be taken in order to reach those goals in the years to come? Who will be your future leaders? Now you finance those desired changes. It can be so easy to fall into the trap of becoming comfortable with the things we've always done. Why do we need to consider changes? Is the way we've always done it good enough? told the vestry a couple weeks ago that I've been asked to come down and lead a vestry retreat at one of our rural churches. And the book that I've asked the vestry members to read in preparation for our time together is An Autopsy for a Dying Church. Should be an interesting retreat. I don't know about you folks, but I'm happy to be able to be serving here in this congregation at this time of I can't think of another place I'd rather be serving God than right here at St. Dunstan Church. I I truly believe that God has great things in store for you in the days to come. And I want to be a part of that until your new rector comes. I I know the bishop has a vision for this parish, even though he can't actually describe it right now. But I challenge each of you here this morning to begin to pray for God's blessing on whatever that dream may be and then begin to ask God to, to show you how you can be a part of that plan for this congregation. You're a church that's making a difference, this community. We're, we're preaching and teaching God's word. You're involved in a wide variety of outreach ministries, but I believe that God expects more from this congregation. He continues to bless you in so many ways. The scripture tells us, to those who are given much, much is expected. And you've been given much that's that God's touch. You've a history in recent years of God blessing you in so many ways. So I wish everyone here this morning would, would commit to bring one person into our worshiping family during the coming year. One person. That's really not asking a great deal, is it? If you love your church as much as you say to them, being here brings you a sense of meaning and purpose and why in the world wouldn't you want to share that experience with others? Why wouldn't you want your friends and neighbors to experience what you have here at Sandboxen Church? How long would it take for your passion to reach out to others It need to be greater than your fear to speak out boldly about your faith? Father Pam left here several months ago and then Bishop Logan was here with you for a brief time. Now you've got this canon In another brief time, what could be instability? But that did not have to be the case. You have the talent and the leadership here to continue to move forward until that time when your new priest is with you. You're proving every week that you have what it takes to move forward on your own during this time. So let's commit together to be for one another, to pray for one another, and to share with all of our strength to fulfill the task that God's placed before us. That's my challenge for this congregation this morning for the coming year. I want to be a part of that challenge. In the months ahead, I'm anxious to be a part of the life of this parish and hopefully to be a part of the challenge that lies ahead. This is an exciting time in the life of St. Diego Jesus. And I hope that you're beginning to feel that excitement. I want you to be a part of it. Paul told the people in Corinth that the greatest gift that we have from God and the greatest gift that we can share with one another is love. May your love for God and your love for one another and your love and concern for this community inspire you to do great things in Jesus' name.